Thrash It Out is brought to you by, well, you. And that is because we are a completely independent and unbiased show with no sponsors or advertisers. Instead, we have a Patreon where you can support us directly and help keep the show on the air and help keep us thrashing. Go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to pledge. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are listening to the 1990 classic from Suicidal Tendencies, Lights, Camera, Revolution. And not just listening, but also talking about it. Oh, that's true. Yes, listening and talking about <laughs> yeah. it. I've been listening to it a lot, literally until the time that you called me this morning. I was <laughs> listening to it one last time before we started recording just to, uh, just to have it fresh in my head. But we'll Freshen talk your all head. about it's a, it. It's a 30-year-old album, or what, 25-year or whatever album, and, you know, it's. you told me that it was one of your favorite all-time albums. Surely I will you, tell you right didn't now, need to refresh it. <laughs> I, what, what blew me away when I listened to it, probably, and you know how I just get obsessive about that, I probably yeah. listened to it 30 times since the last time that we recorded. It's wow. just been in my car nonstop, and... I'm amazed at how well it still holds up for me in terms of those moments where you get the chills from a particular riff or, Mm -hmm. you know, the lyrics immediately jump to my head. And and I was reminded that there was a period when this came out in July of 1990 where I probably listened to this album for two years straight. And so there's so many memories of my last two years of high school that are wrapped in this album, and we'll, we can talk about it when we get into it. Yeah, but yeah. man, one one of those albums that immediately brings you back for sure. Yeah, well, and and to think it really is twenty six years old, twenty five, twenty six years old, nineteen ninety. That's pre Nirvana, pre the grunge explosion. You know, uh, okay, it's post Master of Puppets, but it it lives in that strange period between uh, like and Justice for All and the Black Album before grunge when industrial was still kind of in its infancy. It was a really sort of very specific period of, of metal and of thrash specifically, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was that period right before the bubble bursts, you know? So yeah, you have yeah. you have these bands, and, and in a couple minutes we, we can sort of talk about the other, you just mentioned a couple of albums that were sort of out in that time period, but you had the, if there was a top 10 bands in thrash and, and metal, then you had all of them releasing some of their most well-received albums during the 1988 to 1992 period of time. And Suicidal was right there with all of those guys. And, and as I start gushing about it after, you know, I can, I'll talk about where I think it fits within that. But, right. um, but man, talk about bands at the top of their game. And it looked like metal was in the best position that maybe it would be in, you know what I mean? In terms of like taking over the world and these bands were getting huge and you had the clash of the Titans tour and you had all of this stuff. And so it seemed like there was nowhere to go, but up for metal. And then the bottom fell out. Yeah. Not and then too three long haired punk fans from Seattle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, came exactly. Along Which went, the funny thing is, and suicidal <laughs> get caught, got caught up in that, in that crash as well. But suicidal is such a punk band to begin with that, you know, they, they kind of, 
Oh, they were the, the godfathers of, of crossover thrash, weren't they? Yeah. Yep, them and DRI, really, and Corrosion of Conformity, you can mm. put, throw in there too. But, but Before certainly, they went stoner, yeah. Yeah, certainly Suicidal and DRI are, are uh, in fact, obviously DRI's album Crossover is is pretty on the nose in terms of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in terms of that. But uh, but I went back and listened to uh, some of Crossover and some of Four of a Kind from DRI uh, this past week. And while I appreciate those two albums for what they were, in my opinion, they don't even come close to to suicidal tendencies. And so right, and they haven't um, held up as well. I assume no, that no, they haven't. But uh, but yeah, so suicidal, very interesting, you know, place where this was the most mainstream success that they would get is this album and the next one, The Art of Rebellion, and uh, and then they sort of kind of crashed with everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it was it was such a strange time. All right, but you're right. Before we uh, get too far down that road, let's have our usual follow up um, section, and uh, we've got to be careful, or we're going to turn into accidental tech podcast here and have like an hour of follow up at the start of every show. I know, right? <laughs> There's a lot to get through. housekeeping. Oh, it's crazy. So, uh, first thing I want to say is, as always, thank you to everybody who uh, supports us on Patreon, and welcome to our new patrons since the last episode which, as we record, this was about three weeks ago. Uh, they are Mark Yeager, Eric Panikian, Jim Jarrett, Lenny Reed, Matthew Johnston, uh, who incidentally has given me permission to say he was the guy who uh, mailed me last week and last time and said, you know, I listened to the Megadeth and Queen Rikes episodes. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I persuaded him to, like, come back, and uh, and now he's a patron, so thank you. Uh, Tom Hoare and Justin Nipper, they are our new patrons since the last episode. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, and uh, if you want a concrete example of how uh, your patronage helps support the show. You may have noticed that Brian sounds quite a bit better this week, and that is because uh, you have helped pay for a new microphone for him. Hey! Yes, which I cannot thank people enough for because it is probably the first new microphone that I've gotten for podcasting in, I don't know, at least five or six years. Right. I was using a crappy Logitech headset to still record uh, every episode of this, which uh, which I am super thankful for. So thank you to everybody and and just... In general, man, our, our community continues to grow and continues to be more and more amazing. And it, it just fuels my wanting to listen to this stuff more and talk about it more. And uh, and the community just gets better and better every week. Yeah, it really does. Um, we've also had lots of great suggestions in the patron album selection poll, which is pretty awesome. Um, just to remind you, if you'd forgotten or you're, this is your first episode, uh, we have a new thing where patrons, once per volume of the show, will get to nominate one album each, and we will then select one of those albums at random to talk about uh, as a sort of, you know, in the middle of the the run uh, of that volume of the show. Uh, we're probably going to make that selection during the next show, I think, is you know would be about right. So if you want to be in with the chance of your album being picked, go and become a patron now one dollar or more per episode and uh you can get into that thread and nominate your album we've had some uh some really good suggestions we've had some really obscure like you know black and death metal stuff we've had people suggesting really old school you know sort of like the Def leopard show really old school uh almost like glam metal it's been yeah, it's been really good i can't wait to see what comes out of it and what we do end up talking about yeah that that stuff not only has it given me a whole because many of those albums are, are definitely albums that we're familiar with and, and enjoyed and things like that. But there's also stuff that people are bringing up that I either haven't listened to or maybe haven't listened to in a long time. And so it's giving me... Oh, there's stuff more. in there that I've literally never even heard of. Yeah, so <laughs> e even more stuff to go back. And that's, again, one of the cool things about 
And that's probably a good segue into some of the feedback that we received. We had uh, a woman whose Twitter handle was Goddess Kadesh. She said, officially the most expensive podcast I've listened to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she said, up to track 11, already bought four albums. And then like three tweets later, she was like, make that five albums. Yep. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and I said, I think if you get to 10, you win some sort of a prize. But but that's sort of the beauty of the conversations that are evolving out of the show is that not only are we introducing people to stuff, but man, there is some crazy good suggestions that are happening on twitter on the facebook page yep. in the patreon and I, i've you, discovered at least three new bands just from people suggest listeners suggesting them either on twitter or facebook that i now you know firmly listen to uh since we started this show so it's fantastic yeah somebody posted about nervosa this week and i and i had forgotten about them that this uh female uh I think it's death metal band, if I remember correctly, but they had put out a song a couple years ago and I had heard it and was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I forgot all about them. Right. And someone posted on the Facebook page this week and I was like, oh, that's yeah. where they've been and they have an album out now. A, it's a awesome. song called Death. They're right. uh, Brazilian death metal. I mean, they've got, you only have to look at the, the t-shirts. They've got one of them's wearing a DRI t-shirt. Yeah, that was the first thing I noticed. Yeah, one of them is wearing a death t-shirt. The song's called Death. They're from Brazil. <laughs> It's like, wow, okay, right. Um, but it was really good, actually. I don't think I'd ever heard them before, and I watched that video, and I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it was Lenny Reed that posted that uh, right. up on our Facebook page. And and again, that was a band that I briefly sort of flashed on my radar when they put out, I think I, I read it on Blabbermouth or something, where they had a video or something, but now uh, now I'm going back and revisiting them. Yeah, yeah it really is great. Um, uh, what else did I... Oh, right, okay, so... Uh, just quickly going back to the Patreon, our, f <laughs> our first sort of milestone, which to be honest, we didn't think that we'd actually get to Never. is uh, $100 an episode. Uh, and we're not there yet, you know, but we are now over halfway. We are now over halfway towards that milestone. Uh, and the reward for that is that if we reach $100 an episode, um, we are going to release the extended version of our theme music. Uh, now, the only uh, sort of stumbling block there is that the, that extended version hasn't been fully recorded yet. <laughs> I've written it. I've composed it. I know how it's going to go, but I haven't actually recorded it yet. Uh, so at this rate, I'm going to actually have to knuckle down and do it. But I've decided because we have such a great community and because uh, it turns out that a lot of them, Kel Surprise, it's the metal community, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show are actually in metal bands or yep. are metal musicians. So... I think this would be a really cool way for people to get involved. Uh, if you are a guitarist, let us know. Um, I'll start a thread on the Facebook group after I post this episode. Um, and you, or you can just email us if you don't want to join Facebook, uh, thrash it out podcast at gmail.com. Um, drop us a line. If you're interested, if you're a guitarist and you would like to actually play, uh, on the, uh, theme music that will release two patrons, uh, as an MP3 file, because, you know, my guitar work is all right, but it's pretty amateurish. I'm not, you know, a, a fantastic guitarist. Um, uh, so I need, a, you know, a, a rhythm guitarist. To, you've heard the the riff at the start of the show. You know, that's the kind of thing we're after. Um, so I need a rhythm guitarist and a lead. Because again, you know, the solo that you'll have heard that we used to put in the uh, on the end of the volume one shows, you know, it's not great. I'm not, <laughs> like I say, I've never made any claims to be a great guitarist. Uh, so I need guitarists. Um, that I can, you know, that we can plug into that track to play that track for us. Uh, and then I will be, um, you know, doing vocals over the top. Like a, it will be a proper song, promise you. Uh, so yeah, and I know it. we have some crazy good bass players in the, in the group as well. Um, 
Oh, that's true. I'm, actually, yes, yes, bassist as well. Yes, not just guitarist. Yeah, I got to represent because I'm an I'm an I'm a super amateur bassist. So if you need someone just to pluck like one <laughs> or two notes or just play an open string, like, uh, but I know like Don is a, is a great bass player. Right, like, right. there's some really good bass players that we have in the group, and that that to me is one of the coolest things about the conversations that are happening within the Patreon and within the Facebook page is you now have two different conversations going about compilations. There was one where folks were talking about taking cuts from the different episodes that we've done over the past, uh, the first volume and putting together sort of a compilation of songs that we've discussed as sort of a mixtape, Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting idea. And then that conversation evolved into a whole conversation amongst the musicians in the group talking about recording music together yeah, and creating sort of, new music together, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Collaborating online or, well, it started out as somebody saying, well, what about an unofficial compilation of right. our band's tracks? And then uh, I think possibly through sort of miscommunication, but then it evolved into, yeah, well, hang on, how about actually collaborating online? And right. yeah, that would, I mean, who knows if it'll happen? Yeah, everybody's busy, but that would be amazing. Yeah, it's so cool, again, to see people just sort of uh, talking about that stuff and having conversations about creating. It's just like all of those sort of happy coincidences and conversations are like icing on the cake of what we wanted this podcast to be and, and sort of wanted to to generate in terms of discussion. And you mentioned people with the bands that they've already been playing and people have been posting tracks on the Facebook page of their own bands. I know you posted a track, other people have posted tracks, and it's just fantastic to go back and listen to and awesome for the people who created that stuff to have sort of a renewed discussion about it. You know, maybe some of that stuff they haven't put out for years or they haven't they haven't really talked about with people for a long time. And now the group is just such a welcoming and open minded group in terms of all the different genres that are being thrown out there that I, I just love the discussion that's happening and, and people getting recognized for the awesome things that they've created. Absolutely. And I'd actually completely forgotten all about that. But yes, if anybody who isn't on the Facebook group wants to hear uh, what my first proper band sounded like, at least in one track, um, uh, yeah, go to the Facebook group and look for the thread. I posted something from 90, what was it, 93, 94? I can't even remember now. Um, Yeah, a track from our first ever demo cassette, like proper cassette tape. and uh, that's quite amusing, to, <laughs> especially, yes. you know, given my views on metal that you've heard throughout the show, you can listen to that and go, oh, OK. <laughs> my my dream is that somewhere out there, someone is handing a friend a bootleg copy of our podcast on a cassette tape. <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where they've just written tracks about like, oh, you got to hear them talk about this song, which is one of our favorite songs. You got to hear them talk about this song. Yeah. Like, I just I love that whole uh, that whole thing. So so that's been great. We do have some other feedback that I pulled. Uh, Andy Larson said, super tangent, just listening to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra episode right now, Brian mentions the Squirrel Nut Zippers at one point, and I remember this odd fact. James Mathis of the Squirrel Nut Zippers is also the second guitarist on Buddy Guy's Sweet Tea, which is one of the heaviest blues records I've ever heard. No lie, it's absolutely awesome. Check it out. And what I thought was cool about that is that obviously... Many of us are into a lot of different genres of music, and it's funny to see the connections that come up for people and, and the who's who of guys that played in certain bands that now they go to this band and, and stuff like that, and uh, and that was awesome. So even, you know, if you're looking for suggestions outside of metal, there's some great stuff that's been going on the Facebook page there. Fantastic. 
Uh, Kenneth White said, oh, I was thinking about setting up the other Thrash It Out compilation, one where we pick our favorite track as voted by the people here and make a YouTube TIO compilation to uh, leave littered about the internet as a calling card for the podcast. So that's another uh, conversation that's popped up. And uh, actually, uh, I hadn't, I completely missed that comment. Uh, that would be awesome. And thrash it out because we do the video shows. We do have uh, a YouTube account for the show. So if you do that, make like, let us know about it. And uh, I'll, you know, put that on the actual YouTube account for the show as well. Yeah, and and thanks for. I mean, it's like it's kind of like this sort of street team mentality, and I really like that people are spreading the word and turning other people onto the podcast. I mean, that that's been great. We got a, a new listener returns nil uh, on Twitter, who I believe said, "Just found your podcast, love it. Now listening to past episodes, I want the intro outro as a ringtone." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. To which I said, "I'm not sure about a ringtone, but stay tuned." And that's the stuff about the theme music sure. is what I was referring to there. Yeah. <laughs> he also said, let me recommend Communion by Septic Flesh, because you mentioned you were looking for a heavy symphonic band. And I think you checked that out, did you not? I did, I did. And it was interesting. Yeah. Um, I have heard of Septic Flesh, but I'm not sure I'd heard anything by them, at least not knowingly. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of, it was a little deathier than I generally like. Um, uh-huh. But there were a couple of tracks on it that really stood out. I think the second track uh, really stood out. And I was like, oh, if there are any more albums where most of it's more like that, then, you know, let me know. I'd be well into it. Because, yeah, it was was interesting, certainly. And then uh, Jack Lawrence William Chambers said, so thanks to TIO and uh, Brian, I'm listening to my first ever Suicidal Tendencies song and album. I've heard the name so many times, but never actually listened to them. Here goes nothing. Hey. So I really hope that we have people out there who have not experienced suicidal tendencies before. Um, when we get to the end of the episode, I'll talk about the live show that I just saw because I just saw Megadeth and Suicidal at the House of Blues in Boston. As we record this, it was this past Monday, and it was absolutely amazing. I, I can put say, a spoilers, you up. enjoyed it. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was unbelievable. And uh, it, for, for the Megadeth piece, it was my first time seeing the new lineup, which is Kiko Lorero of Angra is playing guitar for them now. And of course, Chris Adler from Lamb of God playing drums. And the cool thing was Lamb of God just finished a bunch of uh, shows. And so he just sort of slotted back in to playing live shows with Megadeth. And so I got to see all of them. It was absolutely amazing. But Suicidal, man, they, they're an experience to see live. And it was so great to see them. And there was a lot of people because they asked the crowd, you know, whose who's, uh, first suicidal show is this? And there was a lot of people who had never seen them before. And I love just hearing people as they walk out of there at the end of the night talking about how amazing suicidal was. So it's kind of crazy that in, in 2016, there are a lot of thrash and metal fans that just haven't had a chance to really dig into their music. And that's that's a public service I think we're happy to be a part of. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, one more thing about the community, uh, one little sort of milestone that we've hit. Uh, as of last episode, we passed a thousand RSS subscribers. Uh, wow. Up until that point, we'd been hovering sort of underneath. In fact, we are now almost at uh, 1,500. That's crazy. Now, 
RSS subscribers, I don't know how many listeners that actually equates to. You know, there's all sorts of mumbo jumbo and people might be counted twice or whatever, whatever. But considering that with the first show, we had less than 100. Yes. <laughs> you know, fuck it. I'm going to take that. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. That, that's a total win. That is awesome, man. So, and just think, how awesome would it be if each of those listeners gave us $1 per episode? But enough. I know, right? <laughs> enough about that. Um, uh, before we move on to the album, there is one other thing that we need to uh, talk about, and that is the very sad news this week that The Defiled have decided to call it a day. I know, man. Uh, oh, actually, as we recorded, it might have been last week, but... Yeah, really, really bummed out about that. I mean, as anybody who's listened to the episode we did on The Defiles' last album knows they were, you know, my favourite modern band. I just, I loved that band so much. And yeah, they just, they couldn't make it work. Um, You know, they just, they said it's financial realities. They just could not financially make it viable. Uh, Which, you know, when you consider they are generally regarded as one of the more successful of the modern scene bands they had a lot of merchandise you know they had that thing where they did the gig on the iceberg and you know all yep. that stuff they're in the guinness book of world records for heaven's sake um and they st- and they were renowned for packing out live shows you know for having great live shows and you know selling out tours um at you know sort of small to medium-sized venues but they just could not make it work and i think that's uh that's such a shame it is a super shame i mean we we're it it just it made me think of the fact that it brought me right back to the sister sin news that we right. talked about last year and, it, and what it made me think about is like man any opportunity that you get to support or enjoy these bands while they're here take it yeah you know like a the perfect example the show that i went to on monday night boston is about an hour and a half away from here it was a monday night so it's a work day you know, it would have been easy to say, I'm too tired to go to a show after working. I got to get up in the morning and all that kind of stuff. But on the flip side, who knows if I'll ever get another chance to see Suicidal? Yep. Who knows how much longer Mega is going to be around? And for some of these other bands that you see on the festivals and stuff, Sister Sin, a great example, saw them this summer and then they were done. Right. And that was, and that would have been my only chance ever to see them. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm gutted because I was actually planning to see The Defiled for the first time myself this year. They were, they'd announced a tour. And uh, a couple of the gigs were, you know, relatively near me. And I was like, right, okay, I'm going to go and see them. And they've, you know, they've called off the tour. They've said they might do some uh, sort of farewell shows, but those haven't been, you know, sort of arranged or officially announced yet. So that may be it. I may have, you know, completely missed my chance to ever see that lineup anyway, you know, uh, of that band live, which is such a bummer. The uh, we had some just some joking about the curse of Thrash It Out because of their man sister son. I know, right? um, we're like Madden now. I know. Uh, but uh, I would say, and this goes back to something I talked about. I think when we did the Defiled episode, this it's more like the curse of the modern music biz. Um, oh, without a doubt. You know, bands have to take so have to take every opportunity they can find these days to make money. Um, you know, and whether that's merchandise or sponsorships or endorsements or stuff, you know, and I know a lot of modern bands get stick from the older fans like us, uh, sometimes for that sort of thing, because of course, back in, you know, when you and I were growing up that a lot of bands didn't do that and it wasn't necessary. Uh, but it really is necessary now because there is so much less money to be made from the sort of old uh, revenue streams of music, especially with streaming, you know, bands get paid so little for streaming yep. these days. 
Um, and that's another reason why you hear bands talk about not making new music as often. Yeah. You know, it's yep. a reason why you see bands come out with a song in a year instead right. of an album or an EP, or they go the EP route instead of going the full album route because every time that they're paying for studio and, and even with modern technology, you know, that, that only goes so far, but every time they take time off from touring to record new material, they're effectively losing money. Yeah. They're losing money. Exactly. And so it, you know, pretty much they have to play out as much as humanly possible in order to keep things going because doing live so shows, selling merch at the shows, that's how they're bringing money in. Yeah. That's the only way left for a lot of bands to make money now. So it reminded me, do you remember Back in the early 90s, Steve Albini did that open letter about the realities of the music business. Um, it was published in The Baffler. Uh, called, I don't think I do remember yeah, that. Yeah, it was called like the, 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 the Problem with the Music Business or something like that. I'll have a look for it and I'll post it in the show notes. Um, awesome. It's, uh, it was post the grunge explosion and it's basically an essay from, obviously, you know, somebody like Steve Albini knows the realities of the underground scene and, you know, the music biz. Um, and it was basically saying, look, you know, you think that these bands who are selling half a million records are all, uh, you know, driving around in gold Rolls Royces and throwing TVs into swimming pools and stuff, but actually they're probably still broke. And here's the reality and here's explaining why they're still broke. Um, and it was really sobering. I remember reading it years ago and it's, it's a really sobering read. Um, and it's, you know, that's from a period that's now regarded as the golden age of CD sales. Right. Do you know what I mean? And even then, uh, bands could barely make money, even if they had, they had to be mega successful to actually make a really good amount of money. So now, God knows how, I don't even know how modern bands do it. I really don't. Well, you're seeing some of them sort of innovate now with things like pledge music, right? So right, now yeah. bands are going into the studio and they're either partially funding the creation of the album or making money while they can't be out on the road by having people pledge and they, you know, they'll give you studio tours. They'll auction yep. off some of the instruments that are used during Patreons the making of the and album. Kickstarters and yeah, absolutely. you know, um, and you know, I mean, it, bands who are making that work, I'm sure they're actually really enjoying it because of course with that comes an enormous amount of control and autonomy that you wouldn't have had, you know, uh, 20 years ago or even right. 10 years ago. Um, but at the same time, the, um, the stress compare you know what i mean how much more stressful that must be compared to just getting signed by a label and then you go off and make the music and let the label worry about everything else exactly it's this whole other layer that you have to worry about and so you're seeing the bands that are that are you know maybe have a little bit more business savvy or have the resources to have somebody else run that you know sort of campaign for them where they're able to incorporate that so the the bands that are struggling and don't have that administrative component are the ones that it's hard for that stuff even to get off the ground as well. So in, yeah. in any case, it's all taking them away from being able to tour, yeah. which is where they make their only money. Well, and even the ones who do do it, you know, that's no guarantee because I know that the Defiled, they were fairly, you know, sort of music business savvy people. Uh, you know, they had a lot of merch. Um Stitch D's missus runs a clothing store in LA. You know, they're kind of... They understand business clearly, and I don't think that they were, you know, pissing money money up a wall or anything. They, you know, were probably quite fiscally responsible within the terms of the band. But you know, you still need money to come in, and if you haven't got that money coming in, you just can't do it. I remember uh, because I think you're seeing that even like out on the road while bands are touring. I remember going to the Armored Saint show back in September. 
and Gonzo, the drum player from Armored Saint, was using the drum set of the opening band when they played their set. You know what I mean? So, like, even when it comes to getting equipment out there and, and having stuff on the road and all that kind of stuff, I think I think bands are sort of saving money any way they possibly can. Yeah. Well, in and, order and to, drums are to not cheap to transport either. We know that. Absolutely. Right? That's why the drummer was always the one who had the van. <laughs> he literally, he had his cymbals, and he came out and swapped out the cymbals before they started playing, but the drum set, the, the kit was the was the local opening band or the the um you know the that mind maze band who right. I think did do a handful of shows with them but uh so it's just interesting to see how bands are sort of managing that stuff nowadays. Yeah, it really is. Anyway, so that's sad news. Um but hopefully, you know, they will all move on to do uh you know stuff again uh, onwards and upwards. And I I for one will certainly be looking out for anything that um you know either Stitch or the AVD certainly are involved in. Uh, so, you know, if you're listening, guys, good luck to you. Yeah, absolutely. And now let's get on to the album then. Uh, so suicidal tendencies. Uh, yes. Let's talk the, about suicidal. The godfathers of crossover thrash, basically. Absolutely. Although they, I think from what I've seen of Mike Muir over the years would, they don't even care about that label. Um, because they are a band who every time you asked Mike Muir about their music and what their music was and what genre it fit into, uh, he would give you a different answer. And he would <laughs> he would immediately start talking about his own sort of personal philosophy and stuff like that. If you've seen any interviews with, with Mike Muir over the years, then you'll know that he's kind of like a, a skateboard philosopher. He is a, he is a guy who, uh, who can go off on a tangent. He's a guy who is very much a, a unique individual and Suicidal was a band that never really fit in with a lot of the other bands that they were playing with, that they were on shows with, that they were on tours with. And they they started in 1981 in Venice. And when they first started, they were absolutely a hardcore punk, skate punk band. That's what they were. Uh, If you go back and listen to some of their early stuff, like uh, Institutionalized or Possessed to Skate, uh, Subliminal, like all of their old stuff is skate punk all of their old videos are skate videos uh mike muir's brother he announced at the show this week was just uh, inducted into the skateboard hall of fame oh wow so so very strong connection there um and of course they they were uh, they had a very strong connection to the to the venice area as well and so uh, and actually mike muir had been in a band with uh mike clark who is the uh, guitar player he's one of the guitar players for uh, the era of um, suicidal that that is most well known. They were in a band called No Mercy, and one of the albums that came out after um, they started moving more towards thrash was called uh, Controlled by Hatred, Feel Like Shit, Deja Vu, and that album had some remakes of old No Mercy songs that they had done together. Mike Clark has now gone on to do. Uh, he brought that band back, except they couldn't use the term No Mercy, so they call it they call it uh, Waking the Dead, which is another song that uh that is sort of back from their history but those two had played together mike muir sort of peeled off to form suicidal tendencies and then mike clark actually kind of folded what no mercy was doing at the time into suicidal tendencies when he joined suicidal a couple years later and so they have this really interesting history as a band and when you look at their musical evolution it is it's kind of amazing because again, hardcore skate punk 
to start off with. They then move into that crossover thrash into full thrash, but then when Robert Trujillo comes along, they get a huge uh, injection of funk into what they're doing, and then that project spins off into Infectious Grooves, which him and, and uh, Robert did for years. And uh, and so it's just like they went in all of these different directions, and then when you see them nowadays, when they sort of bring it back home, they are right back to their skate punk roots. Like when you see them live in concert, it's all about their old punk songs. If you're going there to see them play all their hits off of Lights, Camera, Revolution, and Art of Rebellion, they don't do that. They play their old skate punk songs when you go see them in concert, and it's kind of awesome because it all goes back to the notion that Mike Muir and those guys never really gave a crap about the labels that other people wanted to put on them. And I think that's kind of the heart and soul of what Suicidal was all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere near as familiar with Suicidal Tendencies as you are. Uh, I think I mentioned last time that I I didn't think I'd heard this album all the way through. Uh, it turns out that was true. Having listened to it, I was like, nope, definitely hadn't heard this all the way through before. I'd heard a few songs off of it. Uh, they got a lot of play on Headbangers Ball and the like, as we've, you know, we've talked about that show before. Uh, you Can't Bring Me Down, especially, I, you know, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard this before. Um, and it's not for any reason, like nothing against them. I like them just fine, but it was one of those bands where my friends were really into them. So I heard stuff all the time, but I just never, there was nothing that sort of made me go, yeah, I've got to go and get this album myself, you know, um, for whatever reason. But one of the things I did always really like was their attitude and the fact that they did look different and they clearly were different and they were doing something different and didn't care, you know, and as you say, just did not care about labels, didn't care that they were different. I'm just reading um, Louder Than Hell, the, I don't know if you've read that, the oral history of heavy metal. Um, uh, I don't think I have, no. I've just got to the sort of crossover thrash stroke uh, Pantera era, you know, stuff of the book. And Mike Muir is quite sort of outspoken in that and says, look, you know, we dressed different. We looked different. We came from a different place. We weren't wearing spandex because at the time, even, you know, even Lars was still wearing spandex beyond the drum kit, uh, in those days. And, uh, you know, he was like, we wore our chinos and button down shirts and bandanas and, uh, you know, in the big shoes. And we came from the streets of Venice and stuff and we just didn't care. Uh, and that always came across. I mean, I didn't know the details, but that always came across in their videos, in interviews with them, uh, and just in the music, you know. Um, one of the things, are you familiar with Body Count? Oh, hell yeah, I'm familiar with Body Count. We, Dude, we should totally do, we should do the first Body Count yeah, album, uh, for sure. Well, I was thinking that when I was listening to this album, because it really, now, but the Suicidal predate Body Count by some years. So, you know, don't, please don't write in. I'm not trying to claim you right, know, right. You're the reverse. Right, claiming that uh, they ripped off body Right, right. Sure. Or, or vice versa, really. Sure. But there is, I mean, you know, because they're from the same, you know, same town or almost. Um, and there's a real similarity, I think, there actually, be in that sort of crossover hip hop metal and a bit of funk and groove stuff in there. Um, and basically guys who aren't traditional long hair metalers playing metal uh, or and, traditional heavy metal singers or that or, too. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, because yeah, absolutely. When ice T did body count, you know, his, there was a lot of people that really balked at that yeah. and was like, what? Yeah. No way. We're not. And, and then you listen to the album and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. It's pretty this good. Is freaking heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and vice versa with suicidal tendencies. I think people 
you know, just just think about their name. So nowadays, you know, you've got cattle decapitation and you've got <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I mean, you've got... Is that a real band? <laughs> that is the name of a band. Yes, it is the name of a band. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so you've got every name under the sun and nobody really gives a shit anymore. But back in the day... There, it was a provocative in, band name, wasn't it? Yeah, Without a shadow of a doubt. And it was a name that got them banned from playing in many venues. It was a name that got them unable to have their record carried in many record stores. Uh, it actually kept them from being on the Headbangers Ball tour. They, they, you know, even though their videos were playing on Headbangers Ball, they were, wow. uh, they were turned down as a potential band for the Headbangers Ball tour because of that song, because of their of their name. They were on Donahue with Two Live Crew on an episode about censorship and about that kind of stuff, and so they were sort of the poster child for. Um, a band that was censored simply because of their name, like right out of the gate. And so they constantly ran into problems with being able to be on tours with certain bands, being able to play in certain venues. And so if you want to know what their attitude was like, they they were asked many times to change the name of their band, to change the name of some of their songs, and they always said no. And so that sort of gives you an idea of where they were coming from, because Mike Muir, if you listen to any interview with him or you, you know, you read anything where he's been interviewed, you, first you'll see he's a super interesting guy, but you'll also see that they just do not give a shit about anyone telling them who to be, what to do, how to dress, what type of music to play. They didn't care if it fit in a certain genre. They would change when they, his response to go back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, how do you describe the music of suicidal tendencies. And he would basically say, it's what me and it's what the five of us like. That's it. That right, was his yeah. entire explanation for suicidal tendencies was it's, it's the stuff that the five of us like and that we want to play. And that was it. And so as new people came into the band, like when Robert Trujillo came in with a huge funk influence, then that's what the band evolved into for a little while. And when it was skate punk, it was skate punk. And when it moved over towards thrash, it was thrash. But they never were consciously thinking, oh, we have to achieve this sound or we have to do this or even... This is what the kids are buying, yeah. Or, yeah, or even, hey, we're going to be the innovators. They they didn't become a crossover thrash band because they wanted to be thought of as a leader in that, you know, they... When yeah, you hear true innovators him, never do because how can you innovate something that you know that ha- that has no name yet? <laughs> you right, you like can't I'll, say uh, we're going to be a crossover thrash band before crossover thrash bands exist. I'll just read you a few quotes from Mike Muir, and these are different interviews that he's done all the way from 1990 when this album came out uh, to today. Um, he told Loudwire at one point, "I don't consider myself a singer. Suicidal to me is something that's different than a band, and I think with what we want to do, it's something that a lot of people wouldn't understand." When we were first going to do a record, one of my friends came over and said, Mike, turn on the radio and listen to that. You can do that. And he said, well, what's on the radio? I don't like. And he said, I said it many times. My dad always said, the surefire way to hate yourself is to get everyone to like you. Do what you <laughs> like for the right reasons and do what you believe in and you'll be all right. And he'll he'll say stuff like that at shows and things. Um, he was interviewed by a, a, an outlet called Cleveland Scene in 2008. And someone said, what does suicidal tendencies represent to you in 2008? Uh, and Mike said, I think it would be a success if people hear it and think you've got metal, you've got punk, you've got all this other stuff, but there's something else. There's another way to do it. If there's some 14 year old kid, I don't want him just trying to play like suicidal. I want him to sit there and go, you know what? 
we don't have to do what everybody else is doing. How can we do something completely different? That's what we tried to do with each of our records. People should hear it for the first time and go, whoa, that's not what I expected. Yeah. And that's basically, you know, his whole thing is that people will dismiss suicidal tendencies because of the name or because they didn't sell as many records as other people or because they think they know what it is. But when they stop and listen to it or they go to a show and they experience it for the first time, they're going to be blown away because it is different than everything else out there. They are without a doubt if I think of the top 10 quote-unquote thrash bands, they're by far the most unique of those bands from a lyrical standpoint, from a delivery standpoint, and from a musical standpoint. They do not fit in any of those other boxes that you could put Megadeth and Metallica and Anthrax and Exodus and Slayer, you know, and Overkill and Metal Church and all those things. They're just different than all of those. They are. I think that might be a little unfair to some of those other bands, but I know what you mean. They are very much like, you You know, you listen to, you hear a suicidal song and you know it's them. There is no, partly because of Mike Muir's voice, you know, there is absolutely no mistaking his, his voice or his delivery. Um, and yeah, and because the music has all these crazy influences in it, which, and they're not just influences that they take and then sort of subsume into an all-encompassing sound. Uh, you know, as we see on a couple of tracks on this album, they are... You know, there's one track where he uh, specifically, they specifically let Rob Trujillo basically show off. For, oh, hell yes. You know, for no particular reason other than why not? Um, and even a lot of the other songs can barely contain him. Yeah, and, yeah, And yeah. that's... Um, well, but anybody it, who's seen him perform with Metallica can see he is, you know, irrepressible. <laughs> right. But if you want to hear him be able to play what his soul truly speaks to, you, you listen to... I wouldn't even say, certainly these infectious two suicidal grooves. albums. Yeah, Infectious yeah. Grooves is where you want to go for that. If you want to see Rob Trujillo play, if you want to see the real Rob Trujillo, go listen to Infectious Grooves, because that is who he is. Yeah. Um, and he just did a documentary um, about Jaco Pistorius, I believe, who passed away, who was a legendary bass player. And I think you can get that now. I'll, well, I'll find the link for it. We'll put it in the show notes. Sure, but um, yeah. But we talked about, you know, how they compare to other bands. Let's just take a quick look at some of the other albums that came out between 1988 and 1990 when this album came out. So Suicidal released How Will I Laugh Tomorrow, which is probably the first album of theirs that is that was more of a mainstream success. Uh, then they released Controlled by Hatred, Feel Like Shit, Deja Vu, which was some new songs and some songs from the No Mercy era of Mike and Mike. And then they released Lights, Camera, Revolution. Okay, so three amazing albums in that three-year period. Metallica had released Injustice for All, and they would not release the Black Album until 1991. Uh, Megadeth had released So Far, So Good, So What, and Rust in Peace, uh, arguably considered their best album. Slayer released South of Heaven and Seasons in the Abyss. Anthrax released State of Euphoria and Persistence of Time. Testament released The New Order, Practice What You Preach, and Souls of Black, and Exodus released Fabulous Disaster and Impact is Imminent. And when you look at all of those, um, I would say that Testament, uh, Slayer, Megadeth, and Suicidal were putting out their best albums at that point in time. Uh, for Exodus, the, the, those are kind of hit and miss. Impact is an imminent is a good album. For Anthrax, they will tell you that they think that State of Euphoria is their least favorite album, even though I like it. And Persistence of Time was kind of a departure. Uh, and for Metallica and Justice for All, 
And then the Black Album, most Metallica fans would argue that their earlier stuff is is better than than both of those. I thought, uh, sorry, going on to Anthrax, I thought State of Euphoria and Persistence of Time were generally like everybody's favorite early Anthrax albums. Is that not the case? I'm not into early Anthrax, so I don't know. I, but I thought those were everybody's favorite albums. I would say that Among the Living would probably be most people's uh, favorite okay. early Anthrax album. Right, right. I'm a big fan of Spreading the Disease, but I think Among the Living, because it's got Cotton Amash, it's got uh, uh, yeah. I- Indians, it's got um, Skeletons, it's got, it's got right. a bunch of uh, great enough. tunes fair on that. Yeah. I really enjoyed State of Euphoria, but one of the things that they talk about is that they were really crunched in the studio, and that record is not really finished in the way that right. they wanted to finish it. And then Persistence of Time is the last one that Joey did with them before John Bush Poor came John along. Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but of course, you know, Slayer, South of Heaven, and Seasons in the Abyss, amazing. I'm, I, might, I might argue with you about Testament as well, but let's save that for a Testament episode, because we are definitely going to do Testament at some point, so... <laughs> Oh, for sure. So, but, but my my point in bringing all of that but up, it was is a that, great, great time for that sort of metal, for that era, sort of like you know, second wave thrash, if you like. Yes, and when you look at what albums were being put out, you can stand behind the stuff that Suicidal was putting out as some of the best of that genre during that period of time. They, I would put Lights, Camera, Revolution up against any of those albums that we just mentioned. And I think what, when you start to listen to Suicidal, especially on on these albums here, where they had this particular band, which was Mike Muir, Rocky George was playing uh, lead, Mike Clark was playing rhythm and lead, R.J. Herrera was the drummer, and Rob Trujillo, Trujillo was the bass player. This This group right now of this incarnation is so freaking musically talented. Right, that, and, that is a hell of a lineup, isn't it? Oh, it's so, so good. And you... You almost forget because it's suicidal and, it, and and it's so punk and it's so funk and it's all these other things that when you start to really dig into some of these tracks, I mean, they're amazing. There, there's some amazing musicianship going on on this album, on Art of Rebellion, on How Will I Laugh. I mean, just really, really strong musicianship, which I don't think they got the credit for when you talked about Metallica and when you talked about Megadeth and when you talked about Anthrax and we talked about a lot of those bands that were very technically proficient. I don't think that Suicidal was thought about in the same way, even when they were putting out music that was as good or in some cases better than what these other guys were putting out. And I feel like, I don't think they cared at the time, but I, as a fan of them, like I care, I want people to know that, man, you think Rob Trujillo is great in Metallica? Go back and listen to this album and listen to him destroy on this album, and you will know what a lineup these guys had put together at that time. I think some of that ties in with my, you know, eternal mantra though of uh, like sort of you know riffs and songs and melodies and tunes over technical proficiency because uh that you know it's clear from this album that they are all fantastic musicians amazing musicians but sometimes and actually this this whole album musically really reminded me of early testament many uh-huh. many places where it reminded me of albums like souls of black uh and the legacy even um and uh and the ritual and stuff and it uh, in that there's clearly really, really talented musicians playing great technical, complicated riffs at times, 
but it kind of gets lost. Like there's, but there's nothing to hang your ear onto on some of them. Um, and like I say, that's a problem. And I love Testament, but that's a problem I have with a lot of early Testament as well. And I found the same here. There was quite a few tracks on this album, which are good. Uh, and you know, you can tell that, as I say, they're being performed by people who are really, really great musicians, but they're lacking the big hook that bands like Metallica always had. You know, even if they may not have been technically anywhere near as good as this, they they always had the big hook, the big riff that you could really sort of just hang the whole song on. And I think some of the tracks on this album are, are missing that. And that's, I don't know, I, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, to its detriment because it is overall, it's clearly a great album. But I wonder if maybe that's why they were, one of the reasons that they were a little overlooked along with everything else, like not looking the same way as everyone else and not caring about, you know, sort of if they're going to do a, break out a funk section in the middle of a metal track sure. and stuff, which obviously is going to turn some diehard fans off. Exactly. And I think you, I think, I think that's valid. And I, and I think that, um, that when you, when you listen to these guys, like structurally, they just approach their songs differently yeah. than a lot of other bands. And so you don't have, and, and also the production isn't always fantastic. And so, you know, you have, Sometimes the uh, the guitars may sound a little washed out, or they're they're not you know they they don't have the clarity. They're they're not always doing what you hear a lot of other metal bands do. Is that there's parts of the song where certain instruments are stepping up and everybody else is fading into the background. They're kind of just all there most of the time. Right, it's together. quite it's quite like, flat. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of all just sort of playing together. It, but that's to me like part of their. That's part of their charm and part of the way. It reminds me a little bit of Dio. When we talked about Dio, not that the music sounds like Dio, but when we talked about Dio, we talked about how like Vinnie Apice plays drums over people's guitar. He plays drums over the vocals. Ronnie James Dio is uh, delivering his vocals over the structure of the song and across the structure of the song. So it's not it's not your typical delivery by any of the musicians in that band. And I feel like suicidal is a lot like that too. The way that Mike delivers his vocals, the way that Rob's bass is, you know, the, the way probably the most, um, the guy who's holding it all together is RJ Herrera, the drummer who is just a master of controlling tempo. But when you listen to like Rocky playing lead guitar and Mike Clark playing rhythm, Rocky's playing lead throughout the entire song on most of their songs. Yeah. He is, he is, you know, Mike Clark is laying down this canvas of riff and Rocky is just shredding or adding these sort of emotional bends and, and sweeps and stuff like that. And there's an element of insanity to the music of suicidal. And there's so much emotion in the music of suicidal that there's, it sometimes lacks the structure that, some of these other bands had so when you're used to listening to metal in a particular way i think it, it there isn't as much to sometimes hang your hat on of like where do i where's the familiar piece here right because they're kind of just all in it at the same time they're kind of all over one another and it's just this it's got a unique flow to it that i don't think anybody else really approached in the same way no, I would agree with that. Uh, and I, I think a lot of that also comes from Mike Muir's delivery, from his lyrics, which are, you know, voluminous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the way he delivers them. Uh, you know, he is, again, this is, uh, listening to this album over and over again made me realise that I think most of my issue with sort of never 
really becoming a, a big suicidal fan is because of Mike Muir. And that, that's, a, which is a shame because I think you're right as a guy, as a front man and his sort of philosophy as a musician, I am absolutely 100% behind. I think he's fantastic, but his actual vocals just don't do it for me. Uh, and I gather he's an amazing frontman live, you know, full of energy and, you know, lots of power in the shows and stuff. Um, and, you know, he's, I think he's the only remaining member from the original lineup. So he, he's the only one who's been on every recording. Right. Yeah. So there's no question that, you know, he has kept this band going throughout he the years. He is suicidal. Yeah. I, I'm full of admiration for him, but <laughs> his actual, you know, actually listening to his vocals, I just, it, it doesn't do anything for me. Um, you know, I, I so want to like Suicidal and this album in particular more than I actually do. Uh-huh. And it's, I think it's mainly, as I say, musically, I was like, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, you, if you put Chuck Billy's vocals on this, I would be happy as a clam, you know? Um, sure. uh, and so it really is. And I say, I feel really bad saying that because I love the guy, but him as a vocalist just doesn't do it for me. When I think of suicidal, I think of them. I, th- there's a video for uh, possessed to skate. There's a we'll put link some of the early videos to them. But that is how I will always think of them as this like skate punk band who are standing on the edge of a swimming pool as people are just skating and they're playing at a house party, and they're all five of them, you know, crowded together because the area that they have to perform in is about the size 10 of feet a postage square. stamp. Yeah, exactly the size of a postage stamp, and they're just wailing. And that's, that's sort of how I always, I, I think they'll always be a punk band to me in, in my head. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of how I think of them as this sort of house party punk band that is just, uh, is just crazy. Yeah. And, well, and that's, and, and, and if I, if I saw them in that environment or if I even, you know, saw them live anywhere, I'm sure I would have a great time. I'm sure that I would, you know, I'd like them more live than I do on record. I think is probably, I haven't ever seen them live, but it, I'm you know, from everything I've heard from people who have, yourself included, I'm sure that I would have a much better time seeing them live than listening to them. Do you know what I mean? Well, absolutely, because when you listen to their songs, uh, most of their songs are an anthem, and most of their songs have either a chorus or a particular line or a particular phrase that you are hearing chanted throughout the song, and you better believe that when they play live, that is, they, they whip their crowd. Suicidal is a band that is a double-edged sword when you want them to open for you because they'll get the crowd riled up. But the problem is... But you've got to be able to follow that. You have to be able to follow that. And and I think that's why bands are very careful to choose, you know, when they want Suicidal to open for them because it doesn't matter if you've ever heard Suicidal or not. When you see them in concert, they're one of those bands that will have you fist in the air, chanting, having a great time, and whoever comes on after them better deliver. Because that's that's what they they just bring that energy, and I think you can you can feel the energy in their recordings, and when you see it live, it's just it's just pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I think there. I mean, you talked about the production. The production on this album, it's not terrible, but it's also it's nothing special. Um, and I did start to wonder again as a sort of the more I listened to it, the more I thought and thought like you know what, this would probably be fantastic live. And I just thought maybe. They're one of those bands that has never, or at least on this album, certainly didn't manage to translate the energy of their performance onto record. And there's a lot of bands like that. White Zombie, 
you know, who again, I, you know, used to love White Zombie. Astro Creek 2000 is pretty much the only of their, one of their albums that sounds anything like or has anything like the energy that they had as a live band. You know, right. this is, it's not an uncommon thing with rock and metal bands. And I, I just wonder if maybe that's, you know, if they'd had better production or if there had been one or two albums that did get that energy across that my friends could have played to me, maybe I would have got into them more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm just looking at who produced uh, that. Mark Dodson, a British producer and sound engineer. Uh, he has worked with Judas Priest, Joan Jett, The Modern Lovers, Metal Church, Ozzy. Um, you know, I wonder Fairly if... traditional sort of rock metal th- stuff That's then. exactly what I was thinking about. So, you know, you wonder if, you know, they get in the studio and most producers are probably looking at them like, how do you... How do you mix this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. How do you capture this? Like, how exactly, how how am I supposed to translate what I see live to, you know, to that? They're not yeah. an easy band to translate. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, so let's see what a couple just other couple quick things about him. Uh Mike Muir doesn't do drugs, doesn't drink. Uh suicidal was often thought of as having gang affiliations because of the way that they dressed and there was the a bandanas gang. and the button-down shirts and yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was one member of the band who at one point was was thought to have had a connection to the Venice 13. So there was there was always this talk about, you know, whether or not they had gang affiliations, especially when they were first starting. Well, and doesn't Mike Muir um, always wear a number 13 shirt? He does, and so that and, probably doesn't uh, help. <laughs> and then on this album, you have emotion number thirteen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, so so certainly there was a lot of rumors, but but they kind of always denied the fact that that any of them were truly in the gang, as far as I was able to see. But uh, but yeah, they definitely they definitely caught some heat for that back in the day. As I mentioned, he had done the stint on Donahue with two live crew about censorship, and he kind of blew Phil Donahue away by how articulate he was and in in like was d snyder classic, at the pmlc thing and yeah. it was a classic offensive moment where where he delivers his you know what he was trying to say there and then phil said i'm really impressed by you know how well thought out you are and how like it just like he just totally like proved mike's point about how people look at them or will make prejudgments about who they are and that kind of stuff. And, and, and he was trying to give him a compliment, but it just came across as like, yep, that's exactly yeah. why people don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple other quotes that he said, uh, you know, he said, uh, he said, we've been in the band for eight years. This was in 1990 when this album came out, we've been in the band for eight years and I don't know how much longer we'll be doing this, but we got to go on with our lives afterwards. This was a, with Ricky Rackman on headbangers ball. He said, uh, if this is our claim to fame, then our lives then our lives are pretty screwed up because this doesn't have any meaning when it comes to the real world. And he was always a guy who, when they tried to talk about like, oh, you guys are successful now, or oh, you were just on this tour, or oh, this, like he, he was never really comfortable talking about their, their perceived success, right. even when they were perceived as successful. Um, but he talked a lot about like personal freedom, about... You know, a lot of bands are talking about politics and, and a lot of the stuff that they talk about is often mistaken for 
um, political talk when when a lot of what he's talking about is the war inside your own head and the war against the things that keep you from being the person that you want to be and and you know suicidal is all about sort of not letting people label you not letting people put you down and when you fail getting back up and, and continuing and, and you know, the last quote I'll leave you with he says uh, a lot of people say I have a bad attitude he said I have the best attitude in the world because I won't quit right <laughs> and that was kind of his approach to everything and that was suicidal's approach is that you know just come and see us play I wonder if they ever toured with bad brains it sounds like you know that there would be some uh, sympathies there between them I think yeah, I, I'll have to look that up. I'm not sure if they did. I know that I've of the three times that I've seen them, twice has been with Megadeth, which is ironic. Really? Because they, Mike Muir- They had a long beef, didn't they? They absolutely did. Yep, you are correct, sir. There was a time on the Clash of the Titans tour, I believe it was, where Dave Mustaine, for whatever reason, I can't find the exact reason, but wanted them to be off the bill. And basically, Mike Muir came on stage when Megadeth was playing and basically challenged Dave Mustaine- to a fight. Uh, and now the irony is they are, they have long since been good friends, but this was back in the 1990, you know, period of time. Right. And, uh, and yeah, it was a pretty famous beef at the time when it, when it happened. And, uh, well, I'm going to guess that Mustang was probably on Rage drugs at the time. He, I'm sure he was. And, uh, Mike also had beef with Rage Against the Machine for a while as well, basically called him out for being sellouts. And, uh, you know, he made some comment about like, uh, you guys are all about fighting the establishment, but Sony's sponsoring your latest tour or something like that. Well, they were signed to Sony. They're signed, the Rage Against the Machines label was a subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary of Sony. That, right. that was so, quite a thing at the time when they signed. Everyone was like, hang on a second. And there's actually an infectious groove song, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but that calls out both Dave Mustaine and, uh, and oh, wow. uh, Rage Against the Machine, not by name, but by actions yeah and so i always uh, just a quick aside because we've already talked about anthrax so i'll get this in while i can i always thought that the song package rebellion on um sound of white noise was about that was about rage against the machine because you listen to the lyrics of that, that song and maybe it's not them specifically but it was it, but it's clearly about that sort of thing about huge corporations selling uh you know pre-packaged non-conformity supposedly to go exactly. to gullible kids yep. and yep. it was around the time that rage were really blowing up uh and i always wondered if that song was about them so you know mike muir was definitely not the only person to raise an eyebrow at the fact that rage was signed to an enormous global you know <laughs> record label <laughs> yeah and from everything i've seen about suicidal that just wasn't that just wasn't wasn't them, in them. yeah you know what I mean? It just wasn't them. And so, you know, even from, again, as we talked about their choice of name, that closed many doors to them before they even had a chance to open. But they wouldn't back, um, back down, yeah. Nope, they wouldn't back down. And, and that's pretty much the heart and soul of, of suicidal is, you know, believe in yourself, don't listen to what anybody else thinks, and you're going to fail, but you got to pick yourself back up and, and move forward. And most of their lyrics, at some point, have, they touch upon those themes. Absolutely. Uh, so, all right, so uh, 10 tracks on this album. 44 yes. minutes. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's average. That's, you know, I know we obsess about that a little bit, but yeah, that's, uh, seems like a, a good length of an album for a metal album to me. Absolutely. So 44 minutes, as you mentioned, pretty, pretty solid, uh, running time. They do have a couple of songs on the album that are longer and they're right up front. 
which usually you see those songs in sort of the middle. You know, the the band will will punch quick and then build to some of their epics, quote unquote, on the albums. You, you see that even to this day, but they're kind of all over the place. Two five minute plus songs to start, and then we go threes and fours the rest of the way through. So you know that's uh, there wasn't necessarily a pattern to it. No, no. Although you know, I think actually that the those first two opening tracks are the strongest tracks on the album as well. So regardless of length, it was a good choice to put those at the beginning. I think. Well, yeah. I mean, the opener "You Can't Bring Me Down" is the longest song in the album, which is five minutes and fifty seconds. And what an opener it is! I mean, you start with this, you start with just the the sort of guitars building, almost an acoustic feel to it, and then, it, which is Mike Clark playing, and then you hear Rocky come in. And the first thing that I think that you notice about Rocky's playing is, A, the dude's a virtuoso. Like, he is yeah, seriously yeah. one of the more talented guitar players that were out there, and I don't think he's ever gotten the credit that he deserves for being that uh, good, but... But the guy that gets even less credit is Mike Clark, because Mike Clark was a master of putting... He, he's one of the best uh, rhythm guitar players that I think I've ever heard in terms of his composition. And so what you get from Rocky is this uh, this sort of emotional, sort of swirling up and down, you know, notes being played over this opening line. And then what he does on a lot of songs, and I love about Suicidal, is there it's going to get crazy at some point and he does a lot of bends and uses the whammy bar to just sort of make the notes fall down the abyss and he kind of does this here too when the drums kick in and the real riff kicks in and stuff like that and so as they're building this sort of like just kind of unsettling opening you hear Rocky's note go all the way down to the abyss and then boom the drums and the bass and everything else kick in. And then of course Mike says, what the hell's going on around here? And then symbol, 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 bam. And the song is off and running. So as an opener, I feel like they, they open, they bring you in and then pow, they just hit it. And it's, it's straight out. I mean, this is a song that they still to this day, including when I saw them on Monday night, open just about every show with. Oh really? This is their show opener. Yep. Their walk on music is the opening. Right where you hear the you know the the individual notes being played and then when Mike comes on stage it's what the hell's going on around here and then <laughs> boom that's when it hits and and you can't bring me down is like the only of their later songs that they really play mm. in a lot of these shows because they play a lot of the old skate punk stuff but this song 
um, you know, you can't bring me down is is become one of their anthems for sure. Yeah, well, and you know, it is also one of their best known songs. As you know, it did get a lot of repeat play on MTV uh, when it was released. So it's also it's a good bet in that most of you, your audience there has probably heard it. But it's also a very high energy track. You know, it's for sure. Really, as you say, it builds and builds, and then you know, bang in it comes, and then from that point on, uh, you know, it's just everybody jump around. <laughs> Right. But what what's awesome is in the middle of the song, and they do this so well in so many of their songs, the tempo change. Right. You get the, the breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good, dude. And like they just, you know, why are you trying to bring me? And then you hear the tempo still slow, but then you get the chugging riff in the background as Rocky's playing over the top of it. And just like that mix of like mixing up the tempo fast to slow heavy heavy riffs and then rocky just kind of soloing throughout almost the entire song it's like he's the emotional he's like the emotional spokesperson for the music while as mike muir is the emotional sort of uh obviously the mouthpiece yeah. for the band but rocky's the way that rocky plays just speaks to me man he he uh he's all over the place but he seems to just find these moments to punctuate whatever emotion they're trying to bring out at that point in time and he really he really sets up the main riffs well with the way that he solos. He's soloing really, and this, you know, here it is again, really reminds me of Alex Skolnick. Uh, I can totally see that, yeah. And the opening to this track, again, it is so testament. Like, you know, everything about the opening, from Mike Clark's, like, semi-acoustic playing in the background to, yeah, Rocky coming in and glissandoing and soloing all over the place. I was like, this is wow. You know, if this was on Souls of Black, I wouldn't even blink. Oh, totally. Especially, like, the bass lines in Souls of Black, too. Like, it, yeah. it definitely, there's a lot of parallels here. That's a that's a good uh, Yeah, Greg Christian's great bass playing was always kind of, that's one of the things that does stand out in Early Testament, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, yeah, a very high energy track. It is, I mean, it's the perfect example, I think, of what I was saying about Mike Muir's delivery as well. It's you either, if you like this track, then you're going to like Suicidal in general. I think, <laughs> yes, I think this yes. is a really good litmus test. You know what I mean? Um, Especially for this era of their yeah, music, like yeah. for the for the How Will I Laugh through Art of Rebellion era of Suicidal. Like if this tune speaks to you, then you're going to like all four of those yeah, albums. You're on board, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, after I listened to it a couple of times, I started to think, I wonder how much Phil Anselmo's vocals on Mouthful War were influenced by this track. Because the more I listened to it, the more I could hear mouth for war in there um and uh and obviously you know it does predate mouth for war by a year or two uh uh-huh. and they were all part of the same scene and i mean you know i'm not trying to accuse anybody of plagiarism uh but it, yeah it made me think like okay maybe there's more of a link between say that sort of era you know the pantera groove stuff and this era of you know crossover thrash or groove thrash uh than you know than maybe i realized and maybe other people realize and I could totally see people like cherry picking some of the basically like suicidal is like a shotgun blast. Like there's so many different influences that are just sort of blasting out of each song and they have little pieces here and there where they play with tempo or they have a particular riff that they switch to or something. I could totally see other bands looking at what these guys were doing and taking little bits and pieces of it and then polishing it and making it something different. Yeah. Because for suicidal, it was just kind of all thrown into the same 
it was all part of the mix, right. but I could see people saying, oh, I like that part of the mix and then sort of bringing it over here and, and making it a little bit more structured and, and sort of building around it in a different way. I could totally see that sort of coming because Pantera sound definitely different from suicidal, but you could see where they're like, huh, I like that sort of call and response thing that he's doing there. Let me bring it over here and do something different. Right. Yeah. And like I say, you know, that happens all the time. It's not, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but yeah, that sure. sort of influence between bands uh, especially bands that are coming up at the same time or playing around in the same circuits happens a lot. I mean, that's how you get things like the Seattle sound of grunge, you know, those bands, that, right. they all knew one another. They all went in and out of one another's bands lineups at times. They all played the same gigs, you know, they were all friends. Uh, that's how it works. So yeah, as I say, but I just hadn't, I hadn't personally uh, seen strong as strong connections between Pantera and Suicidal, as I saw when I sort of really carefully listened to this album, I was like, oh, okay, okay, I can actually see quite strong, you know, connections between the two bands now. And you hit on one of the things that we talk about a lot, I think, on this show, which is, you know, we, we've had some discussions on the Facebook page and in, in, in circles because they're inevitable about like, well, this isn't metal or this is, you know, this this is more rock than metal or this isn't this or that. And the more that you dig into these bands and you see who their influences are, the more that you see those connections are all there throughout all of this type of music. Yeah. And uh, And I think I'll have to find it. Maybe not for this episode, but for another one. But there was an article I was reading about Dave Mustaine's 13 favorite albums. And UFO is in there. Led Zeppelin's in there. You know, Kiss is in there. There's there's all these glam and rock and early, you know, uh, metal bands that are part of the, the tapestry that makes up the influence of Megadeth. And so, like, it's always cool to see what the connections are and what what inspired them. Because as creators, I mean, we all do that. We we take the stuff that inspires us from everything that we've encountered before, and we put our own spin on it and, and try to turn it into something new. You know, absolutely. And you know, sometimes bands just don't want to listen to. I mean, this is exactly what happened with Metallica. They got sick of living a hundred percent metal uh, all right. all the time. And you know, you can see this on the uh, the videos around the Black Album. They all started listening to blues or country or traditional rock or pop music or whatever because they were just tired of you know 110 percent metal 24 hours a day it's it's exactly. tiring i always remember there was a really old interview on some program uh on the bbc with uh ozzy osborne and geezer butler uh and they were sat in some cafe in sparkbrook or something i really really like you know low budget thing um this is before ozzy went off to hollywood you know and uh i remember him saying like i don't listen this was ozzy saying i don't listen to that much metal like my favorite album at the moment is peter gabriel's new album i'm you know uh-huh. we, we listen to whatever we like because it was the same attitude of like oh you know you must be all evil satanists who listen to you know uh alistair crowley recordings at midnight and and he was like no no <laughs> yeah and right and geezer butler there you know who actually wrote most of black sabbath's lyrics you know he's just like smiling in the background going like yeah no you just when you've got this sort of music you have to come up with you know a heavy lyric to go with it <laughs> absolutely so fantastic opener and then track two lost again Like it. 
this is another one where the riff is fairly simple, but boy, is it a killer. And what I love about it is right when the riff starts to kick in with the chugs, you have Rocky just playing this, you know, and he's kind of, again, going down into this sort of descent into madness Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, And that's where I love... One of the images that it always sort of conjures in me when I listen to a lot of, of uh, suicidal stuff is they're, they're very like in your own head sort of stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. and when he's talking about being lost again, it's sort of that, that sort of, you know, introvert or, or you know, you, you have your anxiety and you just retreat into your own head and you can almost like visualize that journey as Rocky is playing those notes and the riff kicks in and it just like, to me, like that kind of stuff just speaks to me and so yeah, just just an absolutely killer riff. Not super complicated, but the way that it's structured to me is just like super super heavy and a little bit almost like Slayer esque. You can detect mm. like almost a hint of uh, slower Slayer. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a hint of uh, of you know uh, slower Slayer in there. But I really really like that. Yeah, uh, this is probably my favorite track on the album. I absolutely love this track. Um, and it's, it's kind of a shame coming this early in the album. Um, but yeah, I think this is, with for me, this is absolutely the one that I could listen to, you know, again and again. It's, yeah, the riff is great. It's not super complicated, but it's just great, you know, feel. It's a good, solid riff. Uh, Trujillo's bass work obviously is, you know, amazing. Um, it's got a good chorus. Muir yep. trying to sing like that you know maybe not the best idea but you know but it is a good chorus and then you've got that coda that sort of groove metal coda where it flips right at the end uh absolutely that's signature sound for suicidal during this era and i love it yeah yeah i mean you know i would love to have heard heard more of that actually on this album uh and there are a few tracks that are more like that and they're generally the ones that i like best um but yeah this particular track yeah lyrically very strong um as you say, very kind of, I don't want to say stereotypical, that sounds pejorative, but, you know, very typical of suicidal tendencies, lyrics of Mike Muir's lyrics, which are, a lot of them are about uh, psychological stuff. And as you say, anxieties and, uh, you know, prejudices and retreating into your own head and yep. keeping a sort of grip on the world. Um, and yeah, this is just, this is a really good track, I think. Yeah, and just like people... People trying to push you down. You know, he says, you, you took my dreams, you left them there shattered, took my hopes, you uh, dug in them and they splattered, took my mind like it didn't even matter. You know, and then you have the the someone in the background punctuating every verse, you know, or every every few lines with a, with a chant. And so it's just uh, it, just someone being sort of stuffed down and trying to, to get to come out the other side of that, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so yeah, as I say, that, that one for me was absolutely a winner. And the second longest track on the album. So 550 and 516 to start the two tracks on the album. And then we, when we move on to track three, which is Alone... Oh, that's just me. 
it's more of a four minute, four and a half minute song. And this is one where if there's anything close to a ballad on the album, you think that you're going to get it here. And then it's a lot heavier than, than your normal ballad. It, it is, although it, it definitely starts out in the sort of ballad area. Um, uh, this is actually probably my least favorite track on the album. I I wasn't too keen on this, and I, I sort of I appreciated it more when I listened to it a few times, and I could sort of see I could appreciate the musicianship going on in the background. As you say, you know, Rocky is great, and uh, Mike Clark's uh, rhythm playing in this is good as well. You know, it's musically it's very tight, but and I, I like the sentiment of the lyrics. I think the lyrics are generally, you know, the sentiment of them is good. But there was just nothing special about this track for me that made it stand out on the album. This definitely, I think, from a lyrical standpoint, harkens back to a lot of Suicidal's early stuff. Like when you when you listen to Institutionalized and everybody remembers right, the line, yeah. all I wanted was a Pepsi. But it's, you know, <laughs> this kid, it's this kid basically trying to talk to his parents who think that there's something wrong with him. And he's just trying to explain, look, I just need space. I just need support. I just need you to to be there for me. And here, you know, this this song is all about, I just need somebody to take my hand and pick me up when I'm feeling down. Uh, you know, be with me and help me through the times when I'm down and lonely. Like, it's just that whole, you know, longing for somebody to connect to that that sort of understands what they're going through. Well, and I think some of it is also about the uh, misconception that if you are sort of standing on a stage and being extrovert on stage, you must therefore be fine and happy and have loads of friends. Uh, Which as an introvert, I think, and anybody else who's an introvert can totally uh, identify with because, you know, for a lot of introverts, when people see you function well in social situations or be able to stand up in front of a crowd, they think, well, you can't possibly be an introvert because you're able to do this. And and a lot of introverts do get on stage, you know, as actors or musicians or singers or whatever, because it's when you're on stage, you do adopt a persona, even if you're not acting, you know, it's not. It's not, I'm not going to go so far as to say you become someone else. You know, that's a bit over the top even for me. But you do adopt a persona and you can do things. You feel like you have a license to do things and behave in ways that you are not comfortable doing when you're not on the stage. So I can 100% uh, empathize with the sentiment of the lyrics in this track. And even in those moments, you can still feel horribly lonely you know he says i feel so alone in a room full of people i'm loneliest when i'm in a crowd and so even though you might be surrounded by people and you might be you know uh, hanging out at a party or whatever you can still feel completely alone yeah absolutely absolutely but as as i say just musically this track doesn't really do a lot for me but it's a shame because yeah i think the lyrics are generally good and the sentiment is absolutely on point so now we move on to lovely Now 
Yeah. <laughs> kind of. This is an anti-PMRC song, isn't it? It is an anti-PMRC song. It's also an anti... I think it's like it, it. It's kind of like an anti-mental illness song too. You know what I mean? Just in terms of of marginalizing right, people who right. need help because you'd rather just put them away where you don't have to look at them. And uh, and and I think I think it's I think the theme of it is just the easy answer to to not dealing with things that you don't understand is just to put them away somewhere and not have to deal with right. them. And it's and, somebody and else's so, problem. Yeah, exactly. Somebody else's problem. And so here, total funk influence in this song. Uh, to me, it's sort of a punk funk uh, yeah. sort of vibe that you have going here, and you can definitely hear Robert Trujillo. Oh, his bass on this is just fantastic. Yeah, just the 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 rolling bass line, and he has a very sort of slap uh, bass technique in this stuff, which just punctuates the funk elements of this whole album and this period of suicidal tendencies. And so he he brings a swagger to suicidal. They already had the energy. They already had the uh the emotion but there's sort of a swagger that his influence brings to this group that i think works really well yeah yeah i'd agree and i I, the reason i laughed when we introduced the song was because i i do like this song and i uh i think the sentiment again the lyrics are great the sentiment of the lyrics is great i think it's uh an odd choice and but an interesting and sort of you know amusing choice to treat this subject matter with this sort of music and even this sort of, you know, when he starts doing all the la la la's, you yeah, know, almost like an upbeat, uh, you know, uh, goofy, right. Just kind of sort of goofy mockery thing. It, it is very mocking. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can see why totally, I can understand why, but it's not at all what you <laughs> would expect. And certainly no, not from it, a metal it, band talking about this kind of, uh, subject matter where, you know, this subject matter has been covered by lots of metal bands, you know, generally... Mo- who take themselves very seriously. Right. Most people, I would think, who consider themselves to be good people would agree with the with the sentiment in these lyrics. And so lots of metal bands have covered this sort of subject matter. I don't think any of them have done it quite in this way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kind of basically saying, like, m- most people that talk about this stuff are such full of shit that, that we're just going to make fun of the fact that they're not being genuine to begin with. Right, and- yeah. Yeah, and so what I love about this song, though, is, of course, in the middle of the song, it really picks up in tempo and becomes a little bit thrashier. Mm. And as Rocky is soloing, they slide right, they decelerate everything and go right back to a slower tempo. And I, when they do stuff like that, and this is a good example of that, I feel like it makes it heavier. Right, like yes, just, yes. They, they, you know, R.J. Herrera really... they. They're so much tighter in that sense than I think they get credit for. The way that they come in and out of these tempo changes, to me, especially with how Rocky is kind of the glue that holds those changes together, that makes them feel smoother than I think they would otherwise feel. And so his his guitar playing and his soloing kind of carries you through these tempo changes and it's just this is an example of one of the songs where i feel like it's super super well done yeah one one of my notes on this particular track and especially when it gets fast when it gets to the thrashy riffing bit is that technically it is pretty amazing you know just from a musicianship point of view and as you say sort of the way that they go in and out the transition in and out of the tempo changes is technically is fantastic it really is but the but there is that none of 
Rocky's solos on this track, especially, really kind of stick in my mind. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't, I couldn't hum any of them back to you. I think for when I listen to a Rocky play, like the things that always stand out to me is not his solos themselves. It's how he goes into and comes out of them. I feel like he's at his strongest when he's ending a solo and when he's when he's bringing you back into the fold of the song right. or how he is introducing you to the big riff that's about to happen through this sort of descent into your own head, descent into madness sort of feel that he has. His soloing, while he is all over you know, the neck, he's, there's amazing sweeps and he's up and down. Yeah, that's and he's what I'm saying. Technically and, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but it, but it's, um, he has a similar approach to a lot of that stuff when he gets more varied, I feel like. And when he gets more, um, more standout is when he's coming out of the solos and he's bringing you back into the song and he's punctuating a particular emotion or the feel of a song. That's where I feel like he's at his best. And he does that stuff so well, um, that that's what what to me really shines about him. Mm. No, no, I think I'd probably agree with that because yeah, when he's actually just in the middle of a solo and just going whiddly whiddly whiddly, it, exactly. it's technically amazing and very impressive. But it just does not. It doesn't. You know, there's nothing. It slips in and out of my ears. Right, and he goes from that. He goes from just you know absolutely shredding to slowing the tempo down along with the song and hitting you know five or six notes as he brings you back into the song. And those are the that's ones more that you're interesting. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, super interesting and 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 really very well matched to whatever part of the song that they're in. So, yeah. All right. Uh, and then track five, Give It Revolution. which is the last song on the first side of the album. I thought I was going to ask about that. I thought it might be, uh, much more, uh, serious in tone, much sort of heavier. And it's got that, that sort of low crunchy riff to sort of start. And this is, this song is a song that I think often gets, uh, misunderstood as a political song. When this is one of those songs that, when he's talking about Give It Revolution, um, when he's talked about this song, a lot of what this song is about is about whatever thing that you're facing, whether it be anxiety or depression or just people trying to keep you down or whatever, you've got to rise up against that and you've got to fight it. You've got to fight whatever it is that's standing in your way from being who you want to be and, and doing what you want to do. And so it's this sort of personal empowerment of like fighting through whatever you need to fight through and coming out the other side. Right. Personal revolution as much as political. Yes. But man is what a line 
you can put a bullet in my head, but you can't kill the word I said. That is one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in my entire life. And the way that they deliver that line for the first time with the riff behind it is it's one of the, we talk about, you know, these moments and songs that give you the chills or they give you that, you know, that, uh, that goosebump yeah, feeling, yeah. boy, this is that song for me where like, man, and, and this is another song where they come in and out of these tempo changes quite a bit. And what's cool about this song is it's really all with the same riff where they yeah, slow yeah, this yeah. particular riff down and they speed it up and they slow it down again and they sort of jam it out a little bit and like, uh, that to me is just so cool that the riff itself is so well structured that it can be played with from a tempo standpoint and still stand up. Still sound no matter, great, yeah. Exactly, yeah. right. Like they don't have to change the riff to make it still feel really powerful. This is another of my favorite tracks. I would say, you know. I love it. Yeah, this, basically, the side one, uh, if you like, of the album is, you know, the only real sort of duff track for me is track three, Alone. Uh, but the first two, I think, are uh, amazing. And Lovely is, you know, sort of good. I wouldn't say amazing, but good. And then, yeah, this is actually another standout for me. I, I really like this track. Great lyrics. Um, and I just, I think I find them more interesting when they slow down. Because when they do thrash, when they're going, they do sound just like Testament or, you know, early Metallica or so many other thrash bands you know what i mean they don't stand out as much when they slow down when they hit the groove they're much more interesting they're much they sound different they sound more unique um and i don't know i just i like it a lot more and i think that's one of the reasons why i like this track so much because it has as you say a lot of temper changes but the majority of the track is you know a slower tempo and when they do speed up in this song, the riff sounds extremely reminiscent of early Metallica. Yes, it does. Because it really there, does, there's yeah. <laughs> this, when the riff turns, it goes, which sounds just like your Master of Puppets era right, yeah. Metallica. And if that, that particular part, like that, that screams. There, this is the song on this album that screams uh, Metallica to me. And there's a song on the back end that screams Anthrax to me. And, oh, and we'll talk about okay. it as we get a little farther down. But th- that one riff where it sort of turns and they go, that is total Metallica right there, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, like we were saying about how, you know, maybe Pantera were more influenced by, you know, track two or Phil anyway. Uh, Absolutely. Yep. I previously realized. I say, I, I think that stuff's great to see little snatches of influence from one band to another. So we flip our record over. Yes. Because we're old fashioned. <laughs> exactly. And the first song on side two is Get Whacked. Wait, wait, I'm in the 
which if you just looked at the title of this song, maybe not the greatest title in the history of the world, uh, but certainly their their uh, definition of whacked in this song is getting crazy. Right, is not what you think it's going to be, yeah. No, it is certainly not about masturbation, and it's not even necessarily about uh, killing someone else. Although some of the lyrics in here are certainly uh, could be construed as threatening, but it's definitely about like hitting your breaking point and just sort of snapping. I and it, what you, wait is that American slang for masturbation? I've never heard that one. Uh, whacking off, yeah, really? That's definitely oh, wow, okay. yeah, that's a new one on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, uh, so as we start this, you get this sort of orchestral building. Yeah, the, 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 this is why I guessed that this might be the first track on side two, because the kind of trumpet call in the intro is a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> and then, boy, when that last note of that trumpet blares, just a cruncher of a chord, and then that descending, like just awesome, starts off slower tempo, and then builds to just a super fast chugging riff and what i like about this song is the first verse that they play it through it's just straight chugging and then the descending end of the riff in the second verse when they play it through again they add uh notes in between so the riff gets more complex the second time that they play it through which is really really awesome but yeah this is a song that is just about getting crazy this is one i was going to ask you if this is a live favorite but you say that they don't play uh, you know, many tracks from this era now live. Um, but it kind of, uh, this track was the one that sort of st- made me really start thinking maybe they just have trouble translating their live feel and sound onto record because I can imagine that this would be an amazing track live. I, I want to say that they played this live back in the early nineties when I saw them, but I looked for that set list and I could not find it when I, when I tried to uh, look up what songs they played. But I, I do feel like this is a song that they would be playing live. Uh, well, and on the, and around then, that clash of the Titans era. Yeah. You, yeah. you can't, how could you have a song like this and not play it live? You know, <laughs> but the thing is like, they have some, this is like, if there is a, I don't know if there's kind of a standard suicidal song like that. You've got a song like Get Whacked, you've got Trip at the Brain, which is a song that they play live all the time. And they played it live on, on Monday night, which is that whole uh, get crazy sort of song as well. So so the, the if there's a generic song title that many suicidal songs could fit under, it's Get Crazy. Right, yeah. Like Get Crazy is sort of there. Okay, this is the Get Crazy song on this side of the album. Well, to the point where uh, Mike Muir's alias as a solo artist isn't it like psycho mike or something psycho mike yeah. yep psycho mike that's it yeah yeah so so get whacked good good opener for the second side though i mean definitely with the orchestral build-up and then just the the you know straight ahead sort of thrash stuff really really sort of sets the table but then we get to track seven which is send me your money three two one action welcome to
And this is the part of the album that goes completely funk. I mean, this is if, yeah. if you want to hear a song that is sort of the epitome of what the the funk. And so th- this is to me, this is the song where Infectious Grooves was born. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. It's just what. It, because infectious grooves is the funk version of suicidal yeah, tendencies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you want to follow sort of where they went from here from an influence standpoint, and so this this song is just it's a song that I really like singing along with in the car. It's sort of a fun. It reminds me a little bit of Lovely in that it's more of a of a it's a mocking sort of, track. Yeah, it's a mocking track. It's sort of it has sort of an upbeat feel. And boy, Rob Trujillo is uh, is the star of this song for sure. It's okay. That's really interesting because my note here is that this musically, I would consider this to be a sort of a proto Pantera track. Huh. Interesting. I would like, you know, again, like I said about the early tracks with Chuck Billy, if Phil suddenly started screaming over the top of this, I would not be in the least bit surprised. And I'm thinking sort of uh, pre far, I'm thinking, you know, kind of Cowboys from Hell. Um, Okay. Display I can totally see that. Era, yep. Pantera. I could really see this. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it made me think like, okay, there really are stronger links between these two bands than I realized, but it is great. Yeah. Great bass musically, really strong. They, this is the track where they, he even says, let's hear some bass. And Trahir goes, blah, 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 all over his. Yeah, and give me some silence for all you sinners. Yeah. It, that's that's a great uh, part of the song. I mean, obviously making fun of the the televangelist uh, sort of yeah. well, he, the televangelist. He even uh, calls out um, the ba- Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, "If you can only send a dollar or two, there ain't a hell of a lot I can promise to you. But if you want to see heaven's door, make out a check for five hundred dollars or more." And that's you know just one of the. Um, I, I the, love the one now. How much you give is your own choice, but to me, it's the difference between a Porsche and a Rolls Royce, <laughs> right? And, and like, <laughs> what's awesome is even though Mike Muir is not your your typical uh, singer for a band like this, he he writes some inspired lyrics. Uh, uh, he's a, a lot great of the times. lyricist. Yeah, 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 and and. And the lyrics are always entertaining to whatever they do. So this this is they're, they're uh, witty. They are. They that, are very. That's witty. That's the thing that separates him as a lyricist from a lot of because there are some great lyricists in metal. Um, sure, but he is not many of them can make you laugh at the same time as you're listening to something that's actually quite angry. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So he says, uh, "Where is the line that I was looking at?" He, you know, we'll we'll take cash, we'll take credit cards, we'll take jewelry, jewelry, we'll take your mama's dentures if they got gold in them. You know, just yeah. the great stuff there. So th- this song is sort of a uh, almost like a palate cleanser for the last few tracks on the album because it's it's the last one that's sort of um, this mocky sort of upbeat tone right the rest right. of the way kind of light. we're going dark and we're going heavy yeah it's almost not that this track's light-hearted but it is compared to the tracks that follow right because then track number eight is emotion number 13 Yeah. 
And this riff is probably my favorite riff on the entire album. Oh, really? Yeah, just like because the riff is so complex. You've, you've got the chugging, and then you've got din in and in and in and in and in and in. You know, just like the the turn of it, like just so so good and a very emotional song. Great lyrics on this song. A quick snippet of them. I want so much for you to think of me as a person that deserves your respect and attention. I wonder if I'll ever do the things you want the way you want when I don't even know what I want yet. It's not that I'm rebelling against the person you are. It's just that I don't know who I am. Man. Yeah. That's freaking poetry. Yeah. Like, just, just. Well, and it's also, absolutely. like, devastatingly honest. Oh, brutal. And the riff and Rocky's little accents from an emotional standpoint, they just all deliver this angst and this struggle to be understood and just uh, so so good like this this is a song that i think a lot of times gets overlooked on this album because it's not one of their quote unquote you know singles or hits or right, something like right. that but boy no this is one of my favorites on the album uh yeah, and I, I it's mean, a great deep cut you it's know? probably the fastest of my favorite tracks <laughs> if you like it and the drums are know. amazing like rj herrera's drums are just during the regular uh verse it's it's just there's the drums are just blasting the whole time. They really are, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, your proper speed stuff. Um, and yeah, it just I I really dig this track. Um, and again, it's another one where, like, if if you had if Mike Clark was playing with Dimes guitar tone and Phil Anselmo was doing these lyrics instead of Mike Muir, you would have had an instant Pantera classic. So sure. to hear that this track is overlooked. I think is is such a shame because I I think part of that might be because of a sort of a, you know a lack of production and the idiosyncrasies of Mike Muir's delivery where you know, you either dig it or you don't um, right uh, because I do think that you know this is a great track compositionally and lyrically it really is a great track so it's a shame to hear that it's kind of overlooked well especially because in addition to the great riff and the drums and everything Rob Trujillo's bass is driving home every note of that riff. Yes that main riff and it's just it gives it such a thickness and such a weight and he he's so good at that and and i don't even know that he gets enough credit in that in metallica but he rob trujillo is a bass player that he could he could solo he could bass solo he's i think he is in the same conversation as cliff burton and i know for some people that's blasphemy but i do truly feel that rob trujillo is one of the greatest bass players of this particular generation. And he can take the lead in a song or he can fade into the background in a song. But what he does better than, than so many other bass players is he really supports the parts of a riff that need to be punctuated in a way that you almost don't even realize he's doing it until you start listening more closely. And then you hear the weight that he's adding to particular notes and particular parts of a riff and it just makes it feel 10 times heavier than it ever would feel by itself right he makes everyone else sound better he does he totally does and and here's a guy who you could build a band around him that's how good of a bass player he is and infectious grooves kind of is that band that's true but even like in metallica today like when you hear him interviewed like he he's uh metallica is very fortunate nowadays to have two people that are the consummate team players. Right. Kirk Hammett right. has always been that guy yeah. for them. Very humble, very team player, very um, whatever the band needs me to do. 
And then Rob Trujillo, who is a bass superstar, comes into the band and basically just says, whatever you need me to do, whatever you need me to do, I'll do that. And he is the most humble and and team-oriented guy, and yet just brimming with unbelievable talent. And to me, that that's so admirable. You know what I yeah. mean? Like just just being being that talented and and just being such a team player is really uh is really something. But boy does he shine on on this album if you really dig into it. And then of course Infectious Grooves is really him getting to play and and do whatever he wants. But but Suicidal I think offered him more of an ability to play his style than he would have had in any other band. Oh, at the time, certainly, yeah. Absolutely, because yeah. this style of bass playing was not regarded as as metal bass Correct. at this time at all. In a few years' time, it would be. When groove uh-huh. metal really hit its stride, sure, everybody wanted to play like this. But at this time, in the late 80s and round about 1990, uh, you know, bass players like this were not regarded as metal musicians. Can I just yep. take a moment, by the way, to reflect... Rob Trujillo has now been in Metallica for 13 years. I know. I just heard him interviewed on, was it Eddie Trunk? The Eddie Trunk right, podcast, right. the guy that hosts that metal show. And, and and they were talking about that, which is really mind-blowing. That isn't that just absolutely, what? 30? How How is that possible? How can it be 13 years since he was announced as the new bassist? It's crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, unbelievable. So I, I can't wait to hear their next album. And, and um, I would love for Metallica to get to a place where Kirk Hammett can really shine and Rob Trujillo can, and they really put take the, the musical talents of all of those band members and put out something that is truly indicative of what they are all capable of, because that would be one hell of a Metallica album. Well, I think if they did that, they might actually have their next Black album. Uh, I agree. At last. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but yeah, I can't, I can't, I just can't wait to hear new music from him because he's fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. um, okay. So now we get to track nine, which is Disco's Out, Murders In. I freaking love this song. It may this surprise song, you to learn that I do too. Oh, it's so, it's such a punk song. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's like the best of their, it's like the best evolution of their skate punk days. And this is the song that reminds me very much of Anthrax. Oh, um, yes. Now that you say it. Yes. Yes. The chorus riff. Yeah. 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 
this goes out murders in that to me that just sounds very early anthrax yeah very early anthrax to me yeah spreading the disease fistful of metal anthrax days and and it just makes me love it even more but what what a great tune this is another place where mike's lyrics absolutely shine if you want to go far we'll make you a star not looking for filler just a serial killer it's got to be violent to make it a highlight if we show it enough well everyone will think it's all right and it's just the whole reality tv and sensationalist headline culture and this is in 1990 well and the focus that, on violence as well and, and the focus on violence as as getting raised yeah and ga- exactly and gang violence and uh yeah you know well good another line goody goody another commotion one more time in slow motion yeah you know how many times have we seen that and as you say that was in 1990 now it's even worse yeah it, it, and this song from a musical standpoint is another song that they really really play with some great tempo changes yeah. but there's there's this moment where they're about to go into the chorus riff and you have somebody sliding down the neck of the guitar you know just sort of crashing right into that main riff but that that's so anthrax right there i love 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 that and then as you get toward the end of the song you just have the chanting in the background of disco's out murders, murders in, in. Yeah. so freaking awesome like this is one i wish they would play live because i just feel like it's got such an awesome energy to it i love i love mike singing on the song and and the way he delivers on the song i feel like this is a total package song for for this band and it's only a little over three minutes long but right. man but no I, so freaking good i would totally agree this is one of the few tracks on the album that i think actually does deliver the sort of energy that you're looking for and that you imagine it would have live you know it kind of explodes on the stereo uh and i agree actually i think this is mike muir's best vocal performance not necessarily his best overall lyrics and stuff although the lyrics are great but performance wise i think this actually is the best track of his on the album because i think this track suits his voice suit especially with that call and response right. where and he's suits singing his high disco's out and then the band is singing murders, murders in, in. Yeah. it's just so good yeah, yeah. right because he does have quite a high register um he does absolutely yeah it's yeah i just think you're right this is a complete package this is another one where it's like i mean i would if this is more indicative of their early skate punk stuff, then maybe I should go back and listen to that some of that. Because I, ha- you totally should. I mean, I this re- is a little bit more polished, right. but they, but this is much more in line with where they were in their early stuff and right in the mid eighties kind of stuff. Yeah, and even through "How Will I Laugh Tomorrow," which was the first one I think that really sort of blew up. This, this is still a feel that's captured well in that album. It's really um, parts of controlled by hatred and then definitely this album and definitely art of rebellion that gets more towards the funk elements of it but that skate punk stuff their early stuff is all punk and then it moves into this sort of crossover stuff on how will i laugh tomorrow that's a good album for anybody that wants sort of more of this to go back and check out because it was kind of one one step before where they got here right right but yeah if if this is indicative if those are of what those albums more what those early albums sound like then i I should definitely check those out because like i say yeah this is a great i think it's a great track and if more tracks on this album had been like this i think i'd have had an overall better you know more favorable response to the album as a whole 
And what's cool about the early stuff is that it's super, super punk, but it's also very witty and still fun. Like, Possessed right. to Skate is a song. You know, the chorus is, beware, he's possessed to skate. And, you know, they're just talking about what a what an amazing skateboarder this dude is <laughs> and how he's just completely possessed by it. It's, and, and, uh, and institutionalized, although while they referenced that All I Wanted Was a Pepsi, that song is not a funny song at all. That song is really... No, and that's another um, one that used to be played on MTV quite a bit, institutionalized. That's one that I have heard before. Yeah, and that one is just super hardcore punk, for sure. Uh, so then we get to the last song in the album, which is Going Breakdown. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to pronounce this one at first. <laughs> it's like I, I when I first read it, I was like, "Go and break down." Go, how can you go go and have a breakdown? I don't understand. And then I realized that yeah, he's it's going breakdown is yeah, you know, is, is or as he says, about. it's a motherfucking breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and so yeah, this is another song about getting crazy. Um, first line: If you like magic, here's a trick. Snap my finger, I'm a lunatic. Breakdown. And this is another song where you have the the band sort of chanting at the end of every couple lines. Uh, it's a really sort of anthem sort of song. And it's got that great sort of mid-tempo riff to start off with. And I also feel like this is another song where Rocky is playing individual notes that really sort of set the mood of, oh, we're about to get crazy. I just think he does that so well, and he sets the table here again with this song. Right, yeah. it's. I mean, I wouldn't say this is my favorite track on the album, but it is a good closer. It's a really, you know, we've talked about it before, uh, about the track arrangement, how important that used to be <laughs> on albums. Yep. Uh, and I think even though this isn't the strongest track on the album, it is a good choice for final track. It is a good choice for album closer. Yeah, definitely a good closer, definitely heavy. And sort of reminds you of of some of the heavier elements of the album and just a good solid finisher. Yeah. It's not the best song, as you said, but definitely closes out the record well and makes you want to flip it right back over and start listening to it again. And, you know, I think... Oh, go ahead. And just to please me, it even ends on a hard stop. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Which which I know you appreciate. Yeah. So <laughs> I always do. <laughs> what I love about this album as a whole is that to me it's just infinitely re-listenable there's no there are songs that are definitely better than others on this album but for me like i will just listen to this whole album front to back over and over and over and over again and you know i park my car at work and i'm on song four and i get out of work and i'll pick it right up at song four that's fine like i don't I don't skip. I don't. I just wherever it is, I'm happy with it. I can sing along to every tune. I just. I really, really enjoy this album. And I mentioned that it came out, you know, when I was in high school. 
I played high school football, and this was the album. This one and How Will I Laugh. Suicidal was like the band that the entire football team listened to. Even really? guys who were not into metal. It just became this album became the music that we listened to on the way to the game when we were all in the bus and we had a 45 minute bus ride to go play a team, you know, a couple towns over or in another city or something like that. We would be blasting this on a boom box in the bus, in the locker room. Uh, Suicidal was a huge, huge band for the junior and senior class of my high school when, when I was there. So, so they were, in terms of mindshare in my high school, they were right there with Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax. They were in some ways more popular than them in my school at that time. And this was an album that people listened to non-freaking-stop all the time. Everybody knew who Suicidal Tendencies was. Wow, wow. I mean, I knew that they were popular in the skate community. Um, and the skate community's relationship to metal, the American skate community's relationship to metal, has always kind of baffled me a little because... Uh, you know, there, there seem to be, I, I, I never understand which bands, why certain bands become favorites of the skate community and then other bands that are to me essentially, you know, much the same are rejected as being too heavy metal. And I'm like, oh, hang on a second, how does that work? Um, so I know that suicidal tendencies were a favorite of skaters. I'm surprised that they were a favorite of football players, if I'm honest. Oh, heck yeah. Well, because of the energy that they brought, you know, I mean, you're you're getting ready for a game, you're getting ready to get out there. What better song to listen to than, you know, you can't bring me down, get whacked, go and break down. Like, if, you, if you're ready to go out and hit somebody like that's, that's a pretty good primer to go out and get crazy on the football field. Um, I guess that's but true, you mentioned yeah. that crossover with, uh, with, you know, skate and, and the metal communities and stuff like that. To me, I feel like if you look at the influence that Anthrax had because of the big four Anthrax was the skate band. You know, they were a band that in their videos, uh, in their promotional picks, in, in interviews, like they, they were absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I love Anthrax is because they're so different than the other three. They were not a Bay area thrash band. They were a New York hardcore punk evolution, you know, when, when they sort of, jumped in in the big four and so that they always represented the skate community in the big four so i feel like that's where um from a mainstream area a lot of that crossover came through but then yeah for sure suicidal huge in the skate community dri all these crossover bands were were huge uh you know skate community bands too yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah i mean overall uh i i mean like i say i kind of i do like this album i i wish i liked it more um but I think some of that, you know, having now listened to it quite a bit, I think some of that is just down to, you know, suicidal overall. Just, you know, a lot of their stuff doesn't quite push my button all the way in, if you like. But like I say, I've, you know, heard their stuff for years because of friends who are into them. Uh, and I've never disliked it. You know, I've never sort of said, oh, you know, skip that, turn that off or whatever. So, so I am glad that I've now spent some time listening to one of their albums in more detail. Uh, it has given me a bit more of an appreciation for them, for sure. I feel like you will find, if you go backwards from here, an Stuff album that appeals that to you, me more, you think? I really do. Yeah. I feel like it, it might not be their first just skate-centric stuff, but I feel like on that spectrum, as they evolve to sort of where they are with this album, you're going to find one that you're like, oh, yep, this is the suicidal tendencies that really clicks with me. Right, right, yeah. Well, and it also has made me think that I should listen to more infectious grooves 
actually. Because again, oh, they're a dude, band that I've heard, awesome. but I'm not overly familiar with. And as I was listening to this and thinking, yeah, all my favorite tracks are the sort of slower, funkier ones. So maybe I should get more into infectious groups. Yeah, I think you would really dig them too. And uh, and just before we wrap up, I always like to pull up set lists from the times that I've seen them live. I've seen Suicidal three times, twice with Megadeth, once I believe on the 1992 Art of Rebellion tour, uh, but I couldn't find the set list from that one. So I saw them a couple years ago in uh, 2014 with Slayer and Exodus, and off of this album, they played You Can't Bring Me Down as the opener. Um, they also played all, all all old stuff, Possessed to Skate, I Saw Your Mommy, Psycho Vision, Pledge Your Allegiance, um, which is, I think, How Will I Laugh. But uh, but this time around that I saw them, same thing. They played You Can't Bring Me Down. They did play Trip at the Brain this time, which was really good, uh, Institutionalized, Psycho Vision, Pledge Your Allegiance. So they, they tend to skew more towards their old stuff and not so much of their mainstream yeah. well-known stuff, which I think is interesting because even people who know who suicidal tendencies are and are like Megadeth fans or Slayer fans are coming to those concerts expecting that they're going to hear a lot of stuff from this album and a lot of stuff from Art of Rebellion, and that's not the case. Right, right. You get a taste, and then we're going back to skate punk time, which I love because they always went over the crowd. They always bring that energy. They always fire people up. And the Pledge Your Allegiance song is the best, one of the best metal anthems ever. You know, it's people basically just chanting ST. And, uh, and it's really, really fun. And they are an amazing band live. And it was cool this time around at the House of Blues in Boston to see it was a sold out show. So the place was packed, three floors, absolutely packed, and it was awesome to see Suicidal come out, and there was probably 40% of the crowd had never seen them before. Wow. And in 2016, that was their first Suicidal show, and to see Suicidal just destroy and get people fired up for Megadeth to come out and just tear the house down was really, really super awesome. Can can I just take a moment to say how great it is that we have i mean you know unfortunately part of the reason we're at this stage now is because of the collapse of the recorded uh industry sales but how great it is that we have come full circle to a time where a band like suicidal who are known but have never you know they've never been on the sort of metallica level or anything um and you know a lot of sort of more casual fans would probably go wait are they still going are they still around uh can sell out a huge show like that, uh, you know, in this day and age, I think that's fantastic. I also think it's pretty cool that bands like Megadeth, who still sell, you know, when they when they go to shows like this, will bring a suicidal with them. Right, yeah. And Mike Mike was very appreciative of that when he was on stage. And what was cool uh, was this was the last night that Suicidal was playing with them. Right. So Suicidal was on the on with them for this leg of the tour. This was their last show in Boston. So they kicked ass. And then, and frankly, even Megadeth, you know, I mean, yes, Megadeth are, you know, very much better known to the average person in the street than Suicidal. But even, you know, there's a lot of people who probably still don't realize that Megadeth is still even around, frankly. So the fact that all these bands can still can tour around and sell out venues again, when 20 years ago, when they were way more popular, they might have had trouble selling large venues out, frankly, or even medium-sized venues, because everybody was obsessed with recorded music and hardly anybody seemed to be going to gigs. I think it's fantastic that we've now come full circle. Uh, And as I say, unfortunately, you know, a side effect is that nobody's buying records anymore. So as we spoke about at the start of the show, very few people are making serious money. 
Um, but nevertheless, you know, people are able to make a living by touring again, which for a while it looked like that was really in danger. And on the positive side, too, I, I feel like the bands themselves really appreciate that now. Like I, I've seen Megadeth play I think play especially probably, the older bands, yeah. Oh, my God. I've seen Megadeth play more than a dozen times easily. They're, they're the band I've seen the most out of any band, you know, of all the concerts that I've seen. And I felt it with Dave Mustaine. I felt like he really appreciated being out there, appreciated the response, appreciated the great crowd. And then at the end of the show, after Megadeth had finished, he came back out on stage and brought Mike Muir out and, you know, said, thanks for being on this tour. And and everybody gave a huge round of applause. They hugged on stage and stuff like that. And they kind of walked off together. And that was a that was a pretty awesome moment to be able to witness because, again, you know, over the course of their careers, yeah, these guys have had some fights and stuff like that. But you get the sense that you get to be a certain age and you get to be at a certain place in your career and you start to really appreciate every moment that you are still able to do the thing that you love to do. Right. And, and I felt that from Suicidal and I felt that from Megadeth and I felt that with those two icons standing up on the stage at the end of the show. And it was really awesome. I have a picture of it. It's not the best picture in the world, but I will post it uh, before this episode goes up. I'll post some more pics from that concert because I got some good shots. And one of them is the two of them hugging at the end of the show and, and people just freaking eating it up. It was really Really, really cool. So yeah, if you do get a chance, and he said something about them coming back in the fall, so that leads me to believe that Suicidal is going to be doing, uh, in the States at least, a tour at some point in the fall. If you get a chance to see Suicidal Tendencies, get your ass out and see Suicidal Tendencies. All right, you heard it from Professor Brian. Uh, okay, so let's start wrapping things up. Thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, do please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrash for links to email and our Twitter accounts. Uh, or of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and a reminder that the poll for the sort of listener selection poll uh, on Patreon, it will remain open after this episode, uh, but then we'll close it before we record the next episode and we'll do the pick live i say live as we record during the next episode um so yeah if you want to get in on that go to patreon.com slash that out and uh pledge and you can join in so homework before we get to the uh you know the listener choice album uh one more from me uh and this is the, the motorhead being sort of you know bumping us um, up to the start has really thrown me this volume <laughs> uh-huh. um so i was looking at kind of what we've had in terms of age if you like uh and so far we've been a bit nostalgic again this uh volume and that's inevitable you know of course when we when people our age are talking about classic metal albums or just metal albums that we love of course a lot of them are going to be older records um but when just the fact that I'm calling them records <laughs> gives you some, you know. <laughs> they'll always be records to us. Excuse me. No matter if they come out tomorrow, yeah. they'll still, still be, be records a record, to us. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, Def Leppard from the 80s, Motorhead, oh, sure. Motorhead from the mid-90s, this from 1990 itself. So uh, I want to go, not ultra-modern, but something a bit more modern. Uh, and also something a bit different that people might not expect from me. And so... Next week, we are going to talk about Hybrid Theory, the debut album Ooh. from Linkin Park, which I think most people will will 
go what <laughs> but i freaking love that album i absolutely love it uh and i will wax lyrical about it literally um all of next episode are you familiar well, with I it can't have wait. you heard it i am familiar with it but only through the hit singles that they had and how big that album right. made them i don't think i've ever listened to the entire album all the way through. Uh, okay okay well that's going to be really interesting then yeah i'll be right that's going to be fascinating because i it's one of those albums where i heard one song uh and then went out and bought the album and then just listened to the album on repeat for you know ever um when it was around so yeah that's going to be really interesting to see what it's like for you coming at it from having heard the hits but not the uh, the non-hit tracks on the album yeah well, and I've always found them to be very listenable, so I'm looking forward to digging it. But I've never really gotten deep into their stuff, so right, I'm right. looking forward to checking that out. So that that's awesome, man. I'm I'm psyched to get into that. And you know, before we wrap up, I just want to again thank people for their their support. It's amazing what this community is turning out to be already, and we're we're only in volume two of this show, and the reaction really is so appreciated. Um, the Patreon supporters obviously are just. Uh, overwhelming and awesome and just the conversations that are happening it really uh it really is just awesome to be a part of so thanks everybody for listening to the show yeah absolutely um so and on that note yeah we will see you next time with hybrid theory by linkin park <laughs>